May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my God and my Redeemer. Amen. So I recently started watching the documentary series called The Jinx. Anybody? How many people am I going to spoil this for? Most of you. All right. It's great. If you haven't seen it, uh, it's an extended interview with the billionaire Robert Durst. And it's, it's made by a filmmaker who made a fictionalized version of some of the events of Robert Durst's life. And then he and Robert sort of connect to try to tell Robert's story. And it's pretty chilling. Um, it's, it's, it's really very sad. If you guys don't know the name Robert Durst, he comes from this New York City real estate empire of a family. And his life by all accounts, has just been filled with sorrow and tragedy from childhood onward, despite being a billionaire and the son of a billionaire. And the reason that he's an interesting enough character to have a documentary made about him is because he was accused of killing his first wife, but a body was never found. He was believed to have killed his best friend, who was going to be questioned by the police about the disappearance of his wife, but there was no evidence linking him to either crime. And in fact, the police didn't even really think that what happened to his wife was a crime. They thought she just left. She got tired of him and ran away. And then years later, Robert Durst is charged with killing gruesomely his neighbor. He puts up bail and flees, only to be caught stealing a sandwich from a grocery store. (laughs) He's finally brought to trial. And as you're watching this documentary, you're like, okay, This guy's obviously guilty. And finally, justice, right? Even if it's not for the other ones, at least for this one, the evidence is so compelling. Finally, justice is going to happen. There's even this original video from that trial. Uh, I think it was like around the year 2000, maybe. And it's just breathtaking to watch his legal defense team mount their case. They essentially make the case that Robert killed his neighbor in self-defense and then remind the jury over and over and over that once self-defense has been claimed, the burden is now on the state to disprove it. So Robert Durst was acquitted of murder and walked away. Now, they admitted freely that he had killed his neighbor, but through their ability to sort of shade the events, he's off scot-free. Was what his lawyers did moral? I have significant doubts. But was it shrewd? Absolutely. Absolutely shrewd. The parable before us in our gospel text this evening has troubled scholars for centuries. I mean, what is Jesus talking about? This guy who has basically been stealing from his master gets told that he's about to lose his job for stealing from his master, for not using the wealth correctly. So then he goes about stealing more from his master, and his master commends him for his shrewdness, and we assume he gets to keep his job. I mean, what are we supposed to take away from a story like this? One of the fun and infuriating things about this parable is that it follows immediately on three parables of lostness, two of which we looked at last week, the lost sheep and the lost coin, And then the third one is the prodigal son. And the prodigal son is arguably one of the most favored and revered parables of all time. It's like the favorite story that Jesus ever told. Preachers love to preach on the prodigal son. 
It's like winning the lottery. And then the very next thing out of Jesus' mouth is the one that almost nobody wants to touch because nobody can figure out what in the world is he talking about, telling us that we should live like this dishonest manager. I mean, he even uses the same words within the prodigal son parable and this parable to try to alert us that he's not really breaking from his pattern. He's still telling us the same sorts of stories about the kingdom. He's fleshing it out. Now, I'm going to spare you the nitty-gritty of what actually keeps interpreters of this passage up nights because I think that the point of what Jesus is saying, the morality of the dishonest manager aside, is really fairly clear. What he's saying is this. The arrival of Jesus on the world scene marks a crisis point for humanity. And the only question is, how are you going to respond to him? How are you going to respond to the arrival of Christ? You see, the manager in this parable is a lot like Robert Durst. His number has been called. He has been caught red-handed. The authorities have been alerted. He's done for. And while what he does is not ethical, Jesus is not telling you, here's how to be a good employee and like keep your job. Go steal from the company. No, no, no. What he does is not moral or ethical, but it shows that he understands what? That he's reached a crisis point. The future has a very foreboding sense to it. It's not going to be pretty. And so he's going to take steps now to ensure that his future is more comfortable, that he's received into homes as friends. The words here are important. In other translations, the manager is called a steward. This person is a servant who is managing the property and wealth of his Lord. We're told that he's been wasting the Lord's property and wealth, and so he is now in crisis because of the Lord's visitation. Is this starting to sound familiar? The Lord's visitation. And the Lord's visitation to this servant signifies what? Judgment. Judgment. Make no mistake, despite the way that we have sort of cleaned up the Christmas image, the arrival of Christ into this world means one thing, judgment. In Christ's arrival and in the world's rejection of him, the world stands condemned already. When Paul, the apostle, goes about preaching the gospel, he tells the people of Athens, the people with a pantheon of gods, that there's only one true Lord, one master, and that we are all his stewards, right? Making use of his wealth in the beauty and resources of the earth and human creativity. And much like the master, we have been caught with our hand in the cookie jar. We're not using the master's resources rightly. And so this is what Paul tells the people of Athens. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Okay, let's pause. I mean, this message is horrifying to our culture, isn't it? It's horrifying to us. If you felt the hair on the back of your neck starting to raise when I talked about the idea that we're all stewards of somebody else's stuff, you're not misunderstanding me. What I'm telling you is that you don't actually own anything. 
not your savings account, not your house, not even your own body. All of these things are gifts from the Creator. And He has an idea of how they should be used. And because He is the Creator, it is all His. It is all a gift for you to put to use rightly. And the message of the gospel is that all of us have put his gifts to misuse. All of us have acted selfishly with these gifts. We have all bought into the lie that true freedom is the absence of restraint, that it's the right to do whatever we want. And what Paul and Jesus are telling us is that we have reached a crisis point, and if the Robert Durst's of the world are smart enough to realize that they're headed for serious trouble, and so they make some shrewd decisions about what to do to provide for their future, then we would be utter fools to not understand what the arrival of Christ means and what to do about it. And what the arrival of Christ means is what Paul told the Athenians, that God has come definitively in Christ into this world to throw open the gates of his kingdom to all who would come in. Repentance turning away from the kingdom of self and turning toward these open doors of the kingdom of God. And the thing to do about it is just that. It's what John the Baptist told the Pharisees before Jesus ever even started preaching the gospel. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now in this section of Luke's gospel, Jesus is telling us very concretely that the fruits in keeping with repentance involve using the resources entrusted to us to give to those who cannot repay us, which is completely against the grain of how we use wealth, isn't it? If you don't believe me, come back next week. The story that Jesus tells right on the heels of this one sort of digs in the red-hot poker even more into how we use wealth wrongly. But think about it. I would hazard a guess that most of us do not have many significant relationships with people outside of our tax bracket, do we? We sort of just get along in a culture that we haven't even really noticed its pull on us where we're sort of giving gifts and receiving gifts and favors from people who can pay us back, right? None of us are really inviting people to dinner or out to dinner who are never going to be able to pay for dinner the next time. At least not often. And here's where we have to do some pretty hard work of synthesis in two directions at once. Because in one direction, I think we have to take very seriously the things that Jesus says about wealth and money throughout his ministry. Almost every time Jesus talks about wealth, it leaves wealthy people feeling uncomfortable. And we really are left with two choices. We can either do what he says or deny that we're wealthy. And if you want to stack up what most of us in this room make against what most of the world makes per year, we're going to have a pretty tough time with that one. Here's what Jesus says, that it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. That you cannot serve both God and money. He says, sell all that you have and give to the poor and come follow me. He says, blessed are the poor and the hungry. I mean, even in the Magnificat, the hymn of his mother Mary, she sings, the Lord has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. What we have to realize is that the things that we own often end up owning us. I keep thinking of that great line from The Big Lebowski. He treats objects like women, man. 
right? Like we're too invested in our stuff. And the crisis revealed to us in Christ's arrival is making clear to us that our possessions are really only on loan to us. They are gifts given to us to use. And we can use them either for our own glorification or for God's, either building up our own kingdom of self or working for the kingdom of God. And Jesus really doesn't let up here. He tells us baldly that if you can't handle the temporal material wealth that has been entrusted to you in this age, what makes you think that you'll be given trust of the riches of God in the age to come? But in the other direction, we've got to understand what makes living this radical way possible. This sort of humility and generosity that Christ is calling us to, it's not just about giving your money away to poor people. It's not just about leaving the world a better place than you found it. It's not just about being a good steward. It is about being from the future. It's about being from the future. We're going to talk more about this in the coming weeks when we start to set out a sort of foundation for how we conceive of ourselves as followers of Jesus in the world. But a big one is that we are eschatological people. There's your $10 word for the night. Eschatological people, meaning we are people from the last day, the new age, the age to come, the day of God's visitation. You see, God's people have always believed in resurrection. Israel always believed in the resurrection, but they believed that it would happen at the end in the eschaton, in the end days, when when human history would be sort of wrapped up and God's people would be vindicated, finally, and the whole world would be set to rights. And so when Paul, this devoutly religious Jewish man, encounters the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus, his entire worldview collapses because he realizes that not only has the resurrection from the end of time broken into the present, But he also quickly realizes that the gift of God's spirit being poured out, which is also a gift from the future, has been brought into the present. Here's your $10 word number two. It's called prolepsis. It's this idea of something from the future being dragged back into the present reality. It's being given birth to in the present. And the place where the future takes up residence in the present is the church. This is where God's kingdom resides. God's kingdom from then and there is here and now. It's where the Spirit is at work bringing about resurrection, these two things that weren't supposed to happen until it's all over. Now, one day it will be here finally and fully. Right? We're still people caught between times, but that doesn't mean that it hasn't started. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and he made it a point to say that you have already been made alive. You've already been seated in the throne room of God in Christ. So stick with me here. Being shrewd, understanding the crisis that is Christ's arrival into the world, right? That the world and us stand condemned in our rejection of him. That recognition that there is a day coming, as Paul says, when he will judge all the earth and that God has already proven to us that that's going to happen by raising him from the dead, by the resurrection, that thing from the future that's been brought into the present. Shrewdness should cause us to change course, right? It should cause us to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, 
Last week, we looked at the joy that takes place in God's presence when one sinner repents. And I told you that repentance is like turning to the voice of the shepherd. It's hearing the voice of love and turning away from self to the love of God. It's not about placating God. It's not about working off our death from all of our mismanagement. It's about being what we are, lost sheep who have been found by a good shepherd. If you have been baptized into the death and resurrection of Christ and have been given his spirit through faith, then you are people from the future, eschatological people. And so, of course, of course you will live differently. You know how in those cheesy sci-fi movies, whenever a character has gone like forward in time and then he's getting ready to get sent back in time, his best buddy who's like working at 7-Eleven always tells him, dude, just tell me to buy stock in Google, okay? Remind me when you get back to buy stock in Google. So what does that guy have to do? He has to listen to the message and he has to live differently, right? He has to take what little money he's earning and invest it in a thing that he knows will pay off. People from the future who know how the thing ends live with a different set of values. And this is one of the core tensions of the Christian life. You are brought into the new life in Christ by sheer grace. You cannot make your way to God any more than a dead person can raise themselves. It is only by the profligate love of God. But you have been brought into Christ by this great love so that you can say with Paul, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In another parable about money, Jesus tells us of a man who owed his master a massive sum. And in an act of radical mercy, the master just forgives everything, sets him free from his debt that he could have never repaid. But we're told that this servant was wicked and went out and found a fellow servant who owed him a few dollars and wrung his neck to get it. And most of us know how that parable ends. To have been met with the love and mercy of Christ is to be made a new creature with a heart of flesh where a heart of stone once was. A heart that responds to others, even those who will never help our social standing with the same love and mercy that we have been shown. God has declared in Christ that one day all of us as stewards will be called to account for our service. And you cannot serve both God and money. And so I would say to you, if you are in Christ, come and feast. Come and serve a God whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light.